raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time. It is the Fan Midday Show. I've recognized that song. That is the fight song of the Indiana University with Jimmy Cook. I'm Will Haskett. Spring football is behind us. Most teams have broken camp. They've had their games. Now the anticipation builds to the fall. That includes all fans in Hoosier Nation getting ready for action at the Rock coming up this fall. And that means there's some tape to go through and some practices to reflect on with our guest. He is the head coach of those Hoosiers. Tom Allen joins us. Coach, uh, congratulations on getting through spring camp. I know it's an exciting time for you and your staff and a chance to sort of calm down and reflect. Yes, it is. You know, as you mentioned, you get a chance to go back and rewatch the film again. You know, with uh, this time of the year, our recruiting, our, our coaches are out recruiting as of today. Head coaches don't go out in May. So I spend a lot of time with film. I actually meet with all of our players going through their spring performance and, and where they feel like they're at and where they want to be, our goals for the summer. So, yeah, it's a lot of time of reflection here, evaluating even things from the season during this time of the year. Then we did a fourth quarter project uh, with our uh, support staff guys, and I'm going to begin working on that in the evenings, you know, and then just do all the recruiting calls and anything that you do to build for your next class. So it's a fun time of year. I love love spring football. I'm glad that uh, we had a very productive spring, came out of it healthy, which is a huge a priority, and uh, we got better. So excited for the next phase. No doubt about that. And I imagine there isn't a coffee shop or Nick's or anywhere down there that you can't walk into where there's a question about that that quarterback battle, which I know is going to play out all the way into the fall. And I guess we'll just continue that sort of track. What did you see out of uh, the two guys, I guess, that are going to be battling for that spot coming up uh, to lead this offense? Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, that is the one question that I get uh, everywhere I go. And understandably so, I, I get it. It's a key position. And so, you know, you have Brendan Soresby and Taven Jackson battling for that spot. And I thought they both had a very good spring. Both had uh, made progress. Uh, both are uh, redshirt freshmen. So, got some youth to them without question. High level of talent. And both those guys, I, I saw their ability to throw it and run it. I just think the knowledge of the system continues to grow for both of them. That's a big part of it. Decision making. Uh, and those decisions speed up as you as you increase your knowledge of, of the reads and the keys and the anticipation of what you're going to see where the ball needs to get placed to in, in the throw game and then also the decisions that they have to make in the run game. So uh, just a, a continuous process. The next phase is very important. I feel like they both uh, have shown the ability to have, have strong arms. You know, we uh, uh, obviously get a chance to see that on a daily basis. It's really more decision-making and, and the, the quickness of those reads and the ability to be accurate with the ball and protecting the ball. I will say both of them uh, – uh, with defensively, we try hard to create takeaways during the spring. And we have a big goal for that, make a big difference to that. It was hard for us to get them, get them from them in the, in, in the air. So that means they did a good job of, of not putting the ball in danger. So that's a positive thing without question. We work hard to do that both in disguise as well as attacking the, the football when it's in there. So I think they have the ability to run it and throw it. That's both their strengths. But now it's the time for them as we challenge them to one of them's got to separate. And these next couple months are going to be big for that. Coach, I want to switch to the other side of the ball. When I look at your most successful teams on defense over your tenure, I look back at 2016, 2019, 2020, look at how fun those teams were and their ability to create those game-changing turnovers. Is Havoc coming back this year? It's got to. I mean, it's a huge emphasis. Always has been, always will be. Takeaway, tackling, and effort are the three DNA for our defense. That's not changed since the day I got here. Uh, but you got to create them, and uh, the, those those plays change games. 
Uh, they, they change field position. They give you momentum, momentum to your offense, to your team. And uh, that, you're right, in the years when we played our best football, uh, those were at, at, the, at the cornerstone of that. And, uh, yeah, it's never going to cease to be a priority. Got to create them, though. And some of that comes with, uh, you know, it's, it's schematic as well. But obviously a lot of it's just being ex- explosive players that can fly to the football, get their hands on the football, affect the quarterback, force him to make tough throws, force him to make air throws, you know, hitting while he's throwing, you know, stress him, pressure him. So no question, it's got to be an area of emphasis, which it is. And uh, like I talked about that in spring ball. So, yeah, I, we live and die by that. And so we got to find ways to create more takeaways. Indiana head football coach Tom Allen joining us here on the Fan Midday Show. And, and coach, college athletics has changed so much in such a quick period of time. And obviously from a basketball standpoint, we're seeing right now the, the transfer portal and what that means for rosters. And you're right there in Bloomington in terms of how quickly they can sort of reshape what that is. I'm curious from a spring practice standpoint with new faces coming in, has it changed even in a, in a subtle sort of sense what you have to do in terms of, of getting players you know, on board compared to maybe spring practices of five, ten years ago with sort of the transient nature of college athletics now? Without question. It's it caused us to even adapt to our scheme. You know, I feel like you have to you have to simplify. We've changed. We made some schematic changes due to the portal because of the, as you mentioned, the transiency of the of the roster, the movement of the roster. Uh, guys are not on your team as long as they used to be, and so you need to be able to have a system that they can pick up in a short amount of time. You still want to maintain your, you know, the, the complexity to the opponent, but for your guys' execution and with new faces and getting more guys ready to play sooner has become a priority, and, and also building your team, you know, and getting them connected. Connected sooner uh, because having some new faces in January that are going to be with you during spring football, and then you also know you got the window just opened on the 15th. Got 15 days of that, so, so you'll have a few new faces that'll be here in the summer that weren't even here in the spring. And so the, the OTAs we do in June have now become more important. Getting those guys indoctrinated. So there's no doubt that this the transfer portal has changed everything in a lot of ways, uh, how we do things, and even all the way down to the scheme that we're going to run. Coach, when you look at former Hoosiers that are getting ready to be a part of the NFL draft next week, how beneficial was the pro day the Colts had just a couple weeks ago uh, for your crew? And then across the board, we look at guys like Cam Jones that are hoping to hear their name called or hoping to be a part of the, the group of signings that happen after the draft. What stands out to you the most about this group? Well, you know what? You mentioned it. You know, all those different experiences, the pro day that we have here, you know, the combine, you know, the pro day, the the day they have with the Colts, bringing our guys in, you know, it's all, those are all interview opportunities for for our guys. And and I thought we had a great pro day, probably the best one we've had in terms of most number of guys that probably increased their stock. You know, I think that that's a a big deal. And and Cam Jones is probably at the top of that list. He was the one that was at the combine and and, and did so many great things for us here. And Jalen Williams and and Taiwan Mullen and, and, and Monster, you know, those guys all from the defense, you know, and the Luke on offense and, and just to be able to get guys an opportunity to, to get the, their name called on, on draft day. So yeah, everything matters in that process. They're looking at every little thing. They, you know, they hire private investigators to, to research their background and, and all the things they've done on and off the field. So it all does matter. And that process of getting our guys ready for that is, is big, big for them. And so excited to be able to see how it unfolds. You really never know. 
when and how they're going to be picked. And all I tell them is, hey, one team's got to believe in you, whether you get drafted or you get a free agent. We had six guys last year, you know, make rosters that, that went as free agents. So that's a big deal. And so it's also another way to be able to make a team, which at the end of the day, that's the goal. You mentioned all the little things that those guys have to do to get ready for the next level. There are a lot of little things that your current roster has to do to get ready for kickoff coming up this September. You're not going to be able to have, I guess, direct hands on them from a practice standpoint now for a couple of months. So I'm curious from a coaching in these meetings that you have coming up sort of standpoint, what are the marching orders that you give to these players over the next couple of months, the end of this semester at school, summer for those that are in class? What needs to happen for them to be their best versions of themselves when you kick off against Ohio State in September? Well, we sit down and map it out. I'm doing that right now. We go through and they have goals for each phase. And right now the next phase is going to be the month of May. We call it May Matters. You know, we, they're, it's a discretionary month. They're away from us. They're not uh, required to be here. Uh, and so wherever they are, they have to have a great plan. We have a, we do a great job with our strength staff, so they'll be, they'll be given very specific plans to work on. We're having things they're going to work on, a film review, certain drills to do, things that they're going to address, their areas of weakness that they need to be improving on. You know, from a physical perspective, some of them can be their diet and how they're going to lean their bodies up and be able to certain body fat percentage goals that they have. So a lot of things that go into that, and we have a specific plan for them, and everybody's is a little bit different. But the key is how do they embrace that, how they attack it. Then they come back, and, and they'll be with us in June and July where it is required. And those eight weeks and those eight uh, opportunities there, we have OTAs during the month of June with our staff and our players. That's become a big part of their preparation. And then we have player-led practices as well that are also extremely important. And they, cause we can't have a ball out there where they're throwing the football in front of our staff. In, in any months now before September or excuse me, before fall camp in August. So a lot, a lot of parts that go into that. Uh, we have a very specific plan for that, how they watch film, how they, they do quizzes and do tests over the summertime and, and just all different creative ways to hold them accountable to doing the little things that they have to do to be their best come September 2nd. Coach Tom Allen joining some time with us here on the fan of the Indiana Hoosiers. Coach, this is year seven for you overall as the top dog there at IU, eighth in general with the program. When you look back to your first full offseason in 2017 to now, what's been the biggest things that's changed over that time in terms of your process, in terms of the way you take your guys through spring all the way into the summer and into the start of the campaign? Well, and, you know, interestingly, like we've mentioned that the portal has changed some things, you know, from a, a schematic perspective, how you maybe simplify some things to make that part different. Uh, we've changed the way we practice, you know, since in the last seven years, uh, not near the, the live hitting uh, in, in the spring. We have, we have uh, opportunities for that, but, uh, you know, we're just trying to keep our guys uh, healthy, trying to keep them developing and, and still building toughness. And, and balancing that out, used to have more, you know, 150 place scrimmages on, on, on a Saturday for two and a half hours. Don't, don't do those anymore. Uh, really kind of getting more of an NFL model of, of trying to, to practice in shells more, stay on our feet. Uh, we now have the summer practice. We never used to have those at all, the OTAs in the summer in the month of June. And that's a big difference for us. And, and really a, b- a big emphasis, you know, you're just trying to find more creative ways to, to have development in May, June, and July uh, when you're not technically having a spring practice you know with it like you do in in march and april so uh it's just just an ever-ending process of how do we make it better and every year we reevaluate it things alike don't like new coaches come in bring their ideas to be able to enhance it but it's all about player development we're a developmental program we have to be tremendous evaluators uh, of bringing talent here and then once they get here we got to be excellent at developing them that's the weight room that's the nutrition piece that's all the things they do when they're away from us and uh, so that's uh 
that never ends and that never stops. And so we're just trying to find ways to keep getting better at it. And uh, there's no question it's changed a lot in the last seven years. And coach, in that vein of player development, obviously there's going to be so much of a focus. And we already talked about Brendan Soresby and Taven Jackson sort of competing for that number one quarterback spot. That's going to be a player of interest for fans coming up this fall. But I want your perspective coming out of spring camp. Give me a name or two of guys that you're excited if they continue on the the growth trajectory that they're on, either offensively or defensively, that you're like, this is this is a guy that Indiana Hoosier fans are going to want to get behind and cheer because he's going to do something magical on the field for us this fall. Well, I tell you, one name that sticks out to me is Lewis Moore on defense. Uh, he's now playing our free stage position. You know, came to us a year ago and and uh, really had not played a lot of defense. Was a receiver uh, at the high school level and then the junior college level. And so, uh, really kind of came in, into his own this spring. I feel like with his confidence, he's a very good athlete, great ball skills, and also has really good bursts of the football. Uh, I'm really excited about him. I think he gives us a chance to really, uh, um, you know, that's a position for me that that guy has always been one of our top tackles. If you look at our history across the, the years I've been here, I started all the way back in, in 2016, and, and that guy's just always around the football. And so I, I think he gives us something that we really, you know, haven't uh, – haven't, the, the speed at that spot is something he really brings that's been unique for that position. Sometimes we had a guy there that was a good tackler, but maybe wasn't as athletic as he is. And I think Andre Carter on the defensive line, uh, I think people saw a little bit of that maybe on Saturday, uh, coming to watch him maybe for the first time. But uh, we've not had a defensive end with his size. Eyes and, and power. He's 270 pounds and uh, just a very, very uh, mature young man that uh, I'm really excited about. I think he brings, you know, the D line is a huge part. The pressure the quarterback's a big deal. So I'm, I'm excited about that. I think offensively, you know, continue to be excited about our receivers. I think EJ Williams, uh, to me, is a guy that uh, has a chance uh, to, to, to elevate himself. I keep talking about, you know, um, you know, Cameron Perry, even though he's an undersized guy, he's really super quick. And we saw him last year as a scout team player uh, on a daily basis as I was there running the defense and he just he made a, a big play about every day yeah, I really believe that and so those those two guys stick out to me as guys that maybe you don't you know they're new guys you know as a redshirt freshman for, for Cam, Cameron and then also as a, a transfer in EJ that uh, have a chance to be able to to help our football team you know to, to be explosive on offense and, and make plays and so but it's going to be a whole bunch of guys I, I could list a bunch more and, and uh, we, it's, a, it's a collective effort it's a team effort, and we need a whole bunch of guys to elevate themselves and to be able to, when they come back on, you know, in, in August, great for September 2nd, that they're a better football player than they are right now when they're leaving for the summer. Coach, last question on my end. I know that you want to get this group back to the postseason. You want to see them capture a bowl. When you look at, and I know we have five months, but I also know that you, you're well aware of what the schedule holds. When you look at how aggressive that first half is in the first you know five six weeks of the season compared to what the second half holds how tough will that first half be but also how much are you going to learn about this group for the first half of the season by the time it rolls around in august well, it'll be very tough, and, and you know, I don't know if I've ever sat down and, and never felt that our schedule was anything but that <laughs> since I've been here, going on year eight, you know, as, as coach on the staff. So we we always have a very challenging schedule now to open with Ohio State. The second time that's happened since I've been the head coach, and so you know, they're the team that's been the the the, the, uh, the marquee team in the Big Ten, you know, since I since I've been here many years before that. So just. Uh, there's no ramp-up games, you know, and uh, you've got to be at your best right out of the gate. And it is home, which is an awesome thing. So, uh, But 
then you got a whole bunch of tough ones after that. So you just got to take them one at a time. And that's definitely a cliche that coaches will say, but it's it's ever. I've, I've learned that here. You you better have tremendous ability to do that. Uh, you can't uh, overvalue one of them. They're all very 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 valuable, and uh, you just say, hey, it's the biggest game of the season because it's the next one. I say it to our team all the time, uh, but uh, you take them one at a time. But we got what we do is we got to get better. You, you got to be able to whatever happens in that first game, you got to improve. Or that second game, you got to keep getting better and better. That that allows you to be able to to then finish the way you want to finish. And at the end of the day, like we said, we want to be able to get back to the postseason and be able to have an opportunity to go win that bowl game, which has eluded this program for a long, long time. Indiana won't have to leave the state first four games of the season coming up in September. Head coach Tom Allen will lead them there. Congratulations on staying healthy this spring, coach, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for the time. Thanks, coach. Oh, you're very welcome. Have an awesome day. Elio. That is Tom Allen. Raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Jimmy, you want the falsetto parts, or do you want to take the baritone parts of this song and the sing-along? Uh, I'll take the falsetto. Okay. And with that, so ends our karaoke here on it's the Fan Midday Show. nine three five one seven five from the com studios. I'm Will Haskett. He's Jimmy Cook. Back into NBA chatter right now here to lead off our number two. Joining us, national NBA reporter for Basketball News. He is Evan Sidery in the midst of a great start to these NBA playoffs. Hey, Evan, how are you? Doing great. Thanks again for the invite, guys. How are you? Uh, doing fantastic. Doing uh, just getting geared up, really, right now for these great playoff runs. I saw your predictions a couple of days ago, Evan. You had none of the first-round playoff series going to seven. After a couple of days now of games, do you feel like we've got a series? I've got my eyes on Knicks-Cavs maybe going the distance. Anything change from what you've seen these first couple of days? Yeah, certainly so. I would definitely say two series I keep an eye on uh, as far as going the distance. Like you mentioned, Cleveland, New York, those teams are so evenly matched. Jalen Brunson, Julius Randle. And then on the Cleveland side, you obviously have Donovan Mitchell and that big front court of Jared Allen and Evan Moby. That's just going to be a rough and tough series, probably going the distance there. Another one I'm really thinking about, the this, this swing game this year upcoming tomorrow in Sacramento or in Golden State, but with the Warriors versus the Kings, if the Warriors can win game three tomorrow without Draymond Green, who's suspended for stomping on Demonis Sabonis' chest the other couple nights ago, I think that could go to distance, too. If they can sneak out the win there in game three, get both in Golden State, and then go the distance for seven games there. Those are the two really entertaining series as far as keeping an eye on there to go seven. Evan, Will and I were in consensus earlier when looking at that Kings-Warriors series that I think it's curtains. I know it's dangerous to say with Steph and Clay, but I just I, I think they're overmatched. I think this thing is is all but wrapped. But you mentioned the optimism there that if they do steal or not steal, protect home court, make it a two one series, get Draymond back. What kind of outlook do you give the Warriors in terms of turning the tide? Just focused on Game Three alone without Draymond Green. Yeah, I think that's the huge pivotal piece of this entire series is how will they respond without Draymond Green. It'd be a lot of pressure on Stephen Curry's shoulders and Clay Thompson. Jordan Poole has been really, to be quite frankly, a very inconsistent since signing his lucrative contract extension with the Warriors this past offseason. He's not been great for them at all. He needs a big game in Game 3 as well, but 
if they can sneak that one out there, it's hard for me to really bet against just with the, the pedigree they have, the experience they've had in these moments. The Kings have not shown it to me just yet, just because they haven't been in the playoffs for the last 16 years. But, I mean, it's hard to bet against Steph and Clay and those guys that are fully healthy. But this Kings team, like you mentioned there, Jimmy, with Demonis Sabonis inside, they're kind of dominating inside out there with De'Aaron Fox, Malik Monk, and Grisley attacking the rim almost every possession there. So I think this is a really bad match for the Warriors here. But if they can sneak game three, get the momentum swinging back onto their side, I think this is a series that could easily go seven. Evan Sidery of Basketball News joining us here on the Fan Midday Show. We'll have Lakers-Grizzlies game two coverage tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern, the start of the coverage in that one. And while Warriors-Kings on Monday kind of felt like the early game of the week, uh, this is kind of must-watch, must-listen to tonight here, Evan, with so many questions. Will the soft tissue injury keep Ja off the floor or not? That's a huge question. A massive game for the Grizzlies. And, and Jimmy and I were talking about this in the first hour of the show as well. If there's, if it's 50-50, even if it's 30-70 against playing, this is a game that Ja has to find his way on the floor. I mean, this is as pivotal of a game as it gets for a team that's relied so much on winning at home. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. So I think you have to get it out tonight. If you're Job Moran, maybe play 20, 25 minutes and just be an offensive dynamo in those minutes if you can. But I think this is a, a series for me overall where from the beginning I've been favoring the Lakers even before John Morant's injury because I think an underrated injury for Memphis' side no one's really talked about is Steven Adams. Yeah. He's been a huge key to them on the rebounds defensively, setting up a lot of their offense too for screens for John Morant. Against Anthony Davis, against LeBron James, who love to drive downhill, I think it's a really bad match for this Grizzlies team. So I had Lakers in six originally. If Ja can't play tonight or if he's really compromised and can't really beat the usual Ja we know, this is probably going to be Lakers in fire, potentially a sweep, because if you go back 2-0 to L.A. with a non-100% John Moran, it's 2-0. I mean, it's going to be hard for me to bet against that Lakers team with that much momentum on their side there. So this is a key game tonight. I agree with you there. If Jock can go give you at least 15, 20 minutes, I think you got to do it. Evan, in that same vein, Evan Sattery, nice enough to take some time with us here on the Fan Midday Show. In that same vein, we talked about so often this year, whether it was a couple injuries to Ja, whether it was when he stepped away, you know, to kind of to get his mental health in the right spot. Everybody was emphasizing, okay, how do the Grizzlies look without him? Now that matters potentially tonight if he doesn't go 11-10 and 10 without him during the regular season. About two and a half points per game drop off in terms of their overall just offensive look of putting the ball in the basket. If he can't go tonight... I know you mentioned a pretty glaring uh, stare down for them and that you think it could be sweep or a loss in five if he can't go tonight. How do they adjust and what, if anything, do you take away from what they did in the regular season without him in that 21-game sample size? Yeah, for Indiana fans, just genuinely curious about tonight. I think it's going to be two Indiana natives with a lot of pressure on them with Desmond Bain and Jaron Jackson Jr. We saw Triple J. He did actually very well in game one offensively against Anthony Davis. Mm -hmm. If he can do that tonight, I think they're set to do well in that area. But Desmond Bain, he's been very hot and cold throughout this season. He was great, as we all know, last year for Memphis and almost one most improved player. But I think, to be quite honest, he's got to put up a 25, 30-point-per-game kind of performance tonight. And then with Dylan Brooks, he's a, just a player for me that's really hard to trust offensively. He's a great defender. But overall, if the Grizzlies want to win this game tonight, it's going to have somehow, some way, you get some magical performances from Triple J, Jaron Jackson Jr., and Desmond Bain.
Evan, so much excitement about the playoffs, and I think anticipation of excitement here in Indianapolis because of where we expect the Indiana Pacers to be next year, being part of this conversation when we're talking about the opening round of the playoffs, even if it comes through the play-in sort of game standpoint, and that obviously hinges on what they're going to be able to do this offseason. In terms of rumbling, salary caps, everything, the, the Pacers certainly have the resources to be able to make a move, whether that's a trade with the number of picks, and it's become spec speculation time here right like what's your the wish list of you know who are the threes or fours the wings that might be out there that you could make a move for or in terms of free agency the list could be exhaustive if you you know agree in anything is possible in this league what are some realistic possibilities that might be out there whether it's free agency or just teams that are kind of in that you know what it might be time to blow this thing up and the Pacers have the resources available to go and get somebody yeah I'll just cover all the wells here just going down all three but let's just start off with free agency and a player that I think is underrated right now and I just think he fits very well with a Tyrese Halliburton type of point guard. That's Cam Johnson for the Brooklyn Nets. He's a restricted free agent. The Pacers have $25 million in cash pace. Can easily get to around 35 if they renounce a few more players. That's a player to me. He's a career 40-plus percent three-point shooter, a great defender, a good locker room player from his time in Phoenix and now with Brooklyn. He's a player to me I'd watch out for because we've now seen the, the Indiana Pacers. They can be aggressive. We saw DeAndre Ayton, who, looking back on it now, probably isn't worth a max contract, but going out and giving him that offer sheet – making the Suns match. I think that's a situation to me with Cam Johnson, who just checks every box to me as far as a great fit with this Pacers team. Going to be 27 years old next season, the prime of his career. He's a great 3-4 wing option. Another one for me, too, is uh, another Indiana native. That's OG Ananobi with the Toronto Raptors, a guy who I thought was going to be moved to the trade deadline. Didn't happen. I think the Raptors kind of made a mistake there because now I think they're going to get less value for OG Ananobi in a trade this summer. And Indiana's a team to me – where I think that makes an awful lot of sense. He's a great defender, a good shooter, a good overall cultural fit as well. He's an, uh, obviously went to school at IU, too, so I think he'd probably stay here long-term. Those are a few players to me just as being a good yeah. defender, a quality shooter, just a player who's not going to ask for the ball much in a low-usage low usage type of role. Because for those that are wondering, this Pacers team with Tyrese Halbert on the court last year averaged 121 points per 100 possessions, which is top five in the NBA. So this is an elite, elite offense with Tyrese Halliburton running the show here, and they can just at least be competent on defense, Jimmy. This could be a team to me where they can easily be a top six seed next year to push the red buttons. Evan, I want to switch back big picture NBA playoffs. We already talked about one injury with John Morant's status up in the air. The same is true for Giannis Antetokounmpo. Doubtful still at this point in time. Bucks just finished shoot around a little bit ago. Miami obviously leads that uh, one game to none. Obviously, I joke here in jest because in your forecast, I would have probably picked uh, Bucks in 5-2. You couldn't possibly take into account the idea that a star player is going to go down in that type of synopsis. But when you look at what happens to Milwaukee if Giannis is not out there tonight, we talked about Grizzlies and Kings without Ja for Memphis. How big of an impact is it without Giannis against the Heat for Milwaukee's side of things, and where do they adjust, assuming he's not out there tonight, to try to even this series at a game apiece? Yeah, this is a tough call for me tonight, just because, like you mentioned, it's a super small sample. There's been games here and there where Giannis has missed, where they've looked good, but in a postseason setting in Game 1, the, the Bucks just looked shell-shocked in Game 1 when Giannis went down, and they just kind of lost rhythm right from the beginning there. But from the Miami side of things, with Tyler Hero now being out for – probably the rest of the playoffs they were to go deep. Uh, that's a huge loss for them as being a secondary scorer with Jimmy Butler. So that means even more pressures on Jimmy Butler's shoulders tonight. So I think it's going to be a very close game, even if Giannis doesn't play. 
if Giannis doesn't play, I'd probably lean towards Miami just based off their postseason experience there. And without Giannis, that's obviously a huge problem for Milwaukee. But let's say Giannis returns in Game 3. I would still pick probably the Bucks in 7, just based off how dominant Giannis Kupo is. Easily one of the two or three best players in the NBA when he's fully healthy. So I'd still pick the Bucks in 7 and go, probably go to distance there. But this Heat team for a while now has been a pretty bad match for this Milwaukee team with their defense, their length, and their shooting ability. Evan Sidery from Basketball News joining us. We're talking about all these injuries, which kind of seemed... I want to say from an optimistic standpoint, Evan, coincidental in the the fact they all sort of happened in this very short period of time to begin the playoffs. But how how much of a concern must this be around the league to see so many stars on the very opening week sort of suffering from this? Jimmy and I talked about earlier in the week, if this is spread out, if Giannis gets hurt in round two and Jaws battling a soft tissue injury in round three and, and you lose one player like a Tyler Hero in the opening weekend, it's not probably talked about as much, but there has to be at least a little bit of a ripple wave of concern around the league given what we saw over the last four or five days in terms of injury news. Oh, for sure. As far as like the numbers and the ratings go, for sure, that's a big problem when you look at potentially multiple series having multiple stars out. But the postseason for a while now, at least to me, is the reps don't call as much fouls. They let these guys play more aggressively. I know some freak injuries happen, like a tired hero broken hand, where he just gets his hand broken off a tip on the basketball trying to steal the ball there. But I think this is... The postseason, to me, has always been more aggressive. I think injuries are a lot more likely in the postseason just with the style of play, the heavy injury workload for these guys. For example, in Phoenix last night, Kevin Durant played 46 minutes, and he just came back from a knee injury. So nowadays you're going to see potentially stars be at more risk for injury in these type of do-or-die situations. But it's a good point, though. I mean, you don't want to see these start players, these type of matchups, kind of be dampered down a little bit early on, like you mentioned. Speaking of matchups being dampered down, last night the NBA drops the hammer on Draymond Green. They suspend him one game for stomping on the chest of DeMontis Sabonis. Your reaction to that? Were you surprised they followed through? Did you think the ejection in-game in the fourth quarter the other night was enough? And then given his absence now, I know we already talked about what the game plan is for the Warriors, but when you look at his suspension as a whole, uh, what does that do to the rest of the series? You know, it totally changes the series for sure. And I have mixed feelings about how the Draymond suspension came about because I know, like, getting into semantics here, we don't know 100% everyone's side there. But to me, it looked like Demonis Sabonis grabbed Draymond's leg, and he might be at fault in this a little bit too. I know he mentioned that didn't happen, but there's a lot of angles that kind of proved he grabbed it. The retaliation part on Draymond's part, though, super unnecessary, and the way he reacted afterwards kind of taunting the crowd. I think that kind of is what pushed it over the edge for a suspension, in my opinion. It was more so his reaction afterwards and what he did. But I think it's just based off his premise, his overall reputation, I think. Overall, we've seen the last five, six, seven years, Draymond Green, in pivotal moments, lose his cool. I think players know that. I think Demonis Sabonis, smartly enough, did that, and it worked out perfectly for the Kings here because now him missing game three – if they go into game three and just keep doing what they're doing offensively, without Draymond Green, it's hard for me to see them kind of being competitive here unless they have a Steph Curry superhero type of game in game three. So it changes it completely, in my opinion. I think the Kings probably win game three now unless Steph does indeed go off. But 
let's say Steph does go off, I'd say Warriors and seven. But this game three swing is absolutely huge. And not having Draymond Green out there for them is gigantic. Evan, you can't see us here on the YouTube chat. We both kind of rose up and looked at our producer, Eddie Garrison, because me and him had a conversation to start the show. Conversation? We you had a reenactment. We, we did have a, a reenactment. full reenactment. We did have a reenactment of what happened. And, and I want to get a clarification for you and bring you into the debate circle. You mentioned Eddie's point, which is that looks like that DeMontis Sabonis grabs his leg. I think he definitely did grab his leg, but it looks like he did. And then Draymond responds, and that was Eddie's point. My point was, well, there's a fine line between the way you respond and stomping somebody in the chest. Your thoughts on that, of if it was warranted for the stomp, or like, like basically does he get a free pass because Sabonis held him, or is there a proper way to respond to that versus, you know, curb stomp to the chest? Yeah, I hope this uh, explanation makes sense because <laughs> I think it's one where most other players, probably 90% of star players, do not get suspended in the situation. But I just think it's the Draymond Green tax here where it's happened multiple times in the past. Adam Silver's probably like, you did it for the fourth or fifth time now in the last seven or eight years. You got to learn your lesson at some point, and he might just did it because of that. I mean, I think simply because Draymond has had these issues consistently in postseason play. I think it's kind of just Adam Silver slapping on the wrist here and saying, what in the world are you doing? I think the retaliation part for him was a little overboard, I would say, just stomping on him. That kind of reminded me of the Adama Kinsu situation about 10-plus years ago at the Lions <laughs> and what happened there. But I, I think with him, it's a situation to me where it, it's the Draymond Green tax. I, I just think that's simply it. If it was Sabonis that did that the other way around, I think he's fine and he's not suspended. And Joe Dumars pretty much said that today in yeah, his correct. comments to Woj that, look, this is this is exactly what probably happened in terms of the fact that we've seen a, a character flaw and a repeated violation of this moving forward. Um, Evan, when you look at the the playoff series we've had, you know, there's so many compelling series. We've talked a lot about Lakers-Grizzlies tonight. The Kings-Warriors series is getting a lot of attention, and rightfully so. Maybe more so today for the bad is, instead of the good for the Kings. And then we could go this entire segment, if I didn't bring this up, without talking about probably the most boring series of this opening round that you picked to go in four. It's probably going to go in four. The Celtics just doing what the Celtics do if you had I mean is this the year they get the monkey off of their back I mean the way that we've sort of seen the injury start to Giannis and I know I'm playing a long sort of game here but all of this stuff happening all of this news cycle and Boston just doing what it needs to do are they almost undervalued in terms of their championship potential I think so. I mean, just based off the Giannis injury, what happens there, it's going to be a whole pendulum swing one way or the other. I would lean Milwaukee if Giannis is 100% healthy and he gets back to his usual self there. But if not, certainly I would take the Celtics. I think one team that's being a little slept on here, though, is Philadelphia. I just think that this could be the kind of year they break through. They have shooters. They have great defenders. James Harden doesn't have the pressure on his shoulders offensively. He has Tyrese Maxey now blossoming next to him. Joel Embiid could put up 35-40 on most nights. But like you mentioned, though, this defense with Boston, Robert Williams, you have great defenders, Derek White blossoming in Boston this year as well. Jalen Brown, Jason Tamby, one of the best one-two windows in the NBA. I would certainly say that's a great matchup, potentially, in the Eastern Conference Finals or to happen. I would probably say Celtics in seven if we get to that hypothetical there. So I would say Boston does probably make the finals here in the Eastern Conference. I would say it's a coin flip between a healthy Bucks team and a healthy Celtics team. But for me, the Western Conference, too, especially, whoever they face, I think the Boston Celtics will be the favorites in any, any series they come up against. Evan, when will casual fans or just playoff watchers maybe have been watching all season remember that the Denver Nuggets are the number one seed in the West? And, and, and why, why is it that they just can't get any love? It just why? won't happen. 
know what happened. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good question. I, I think it's more so that Nikola Jokic is the most quiet kind of generational superstar we've ever seen where he's not going to ask for the attention. He's just going to go out and do the triple doubles every night. They have great role players, which are not, I wouldn't even say role players. I would say really good players in Jamal Murray, Michael Porter Jr., Aaron Gordon. That's a really well-constructed team around Nikola Jokic as far as kind of hiding him defensively. I think it's more so just about can the Nuggets finally get over the hump in the postseason. We've seen this now three or four years in a row where the Nuggets are a top three, top four seed, but in the end they always disappoint in the first second round. And that could potentially happen again here. I think it could be a very quick series against the Timberwolves, probably four or five games if they really want to. But the next series probably most likely against the Phoenix Suns. I think that's a really tough match for the Denver Nuggets with Kevin Durant, Devin Booker, probably the best one-two scoring combination in the NBA, in my opinion, when they're fully go. I think I've picked the Suns in that situation. I just think it's more so the superstar talent, the postseason wins out here. But this Nuggets team, it feels like a make-or-break kind of year for them because if this is the year they're finally going to break through, Jokic having another incredible year, all your good players around them having incredible career-high years, this just feels like Denver's time. If they can't break through – I don't know what happens next for them. Suns and Clippers are tied up heading back to L.A. Is it more likely that one of those two teams wins the series or one of those two teams loses the series, if you understand the gist of my question? Yeah, I think it's definitely the Suns winning this series outright because Paul George likely won't play in this series. Potentially, I mean, if the season's on the line in a game six or something like that, I think he could probably come back and play 15, 20 minutes if he wants to. But I think the Suns team, just based off experience, they're gelling in real time in the postseason, which has not really happened much before with a superstar player. I think since Wilt Chamberlain, when that trade happened about 60-plus years ago, was probably the biggest superstar trade midseason that we've seen. And Kevin Durant kind of tops that one. And him gelling with Devin Booker, Chris Paul, DeAndre Ayton, and a pretty thin bench now after the trade they made. It's going to be curious to see how they actually operate throughout the postseason here. Because if they can actually get chemistry, if Kevin Durant and Devin Booker can thrive in postseason basketball like they have the last five, six years, I think this is a team where they should steamroll through the Western Conference. But the question to me is, are they going to be able to go up against a Denver team that is fully cohesive, has all the chemistry in the world, and go and beat them in their building, potentially the seven-game series? Good stuff, Evan. As always, some fascinating playoff series, including this game two tonight with the Lakers and the Grizzlies, one of three. I know you'll be watching. Uh, We appreciate your insight. Thanks for stopping by. Absolutely. Appreciate it, guys. That's Evan Sidery. You can follow him on Twitter at E Sidery. That's S-I-D-E-R-Y, National NBA reporter for Basketball News. Raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Fan Midday Show here on 93.5, 107.5 The Fan. I'm Will Haskett, Jimmy Cook in as well. Eddie Garrison's pitching a perfect game thus far, including... Dialing up and bringing on our final guest of the day. We spent a lot of time in the last hour talking about what might happen in front of the Colts coming up in this draft. And there's more wrinkles to that story if you believe the rumor mill here over the last couple of days to help us decipher what's true, what's not, and what might still happen. It's our man down in Houston, Aaron Wilson from KPRC and iHeart 760 in Houston. Hey, Aaron, how are you? 
Doing great. How are you? Fantastic. Thanks. Okay. Uh, we were on the air, I think, on Monday when the idea that the second pick was perhaps up for grabs or on the market or it may not be as simple from a quarterback standpoint. So there's a lot of smoke that's drifting northeast from Houston over Indianapolis right now. Aaron, is there a fire on the ground there or is it just smoke at this point in time? As far as what will be fire. As how available the second pick is oh, to the NFL. No, it's available. That's true. Yeah, you can trade for the second pick. Absolutely. Not the Colts, though. Anybody else could trade for it. There's no way they're dealing the that Colts, pick to Indianapolis. No, no, you don't, you don't do that. You don't help your rival in the AFC South. No, the Colts, yeah, that's a click. That's a, <laughs> it's a hard hang-up. So, so do you remember when Deshaun Watson, they made an inquiry? Yeah, it was a no. <laughs> I mean, and that's, that's not strange. That's just normal. Yeah. That, that, that's nothing personal. I mean, they respect the Colts. Uh, I believe, you know, even though it's a rivalry, the organizations, you know, have respect for each other and, you know, uh, friendly is the right word, but, you know, definitely like, you know, nothing antagonistic toward each other. And that includes the players. But no, you don't do that. You don't make that trade. Aaron, I guess kind of keep this fire analogy going along, a, a secondary fire that I'll bring up in regards to the second overall pick. I thought for a while that, okay, whether it's Young or Stroud, it's a quarterback by the Texans at two. The other rumor mill comment has been, well, they really like Bryce Young, and if he's not there, they're not sold on C.J. Stroud. Is that what you're hearing in your circles? Yeah, that's what I'm reporting, that Bryce Young is a Panther. Just needs to become official. So Bryce Young goes to the Panthers, and that was the quarterback that they wanted. And you just you don't want to accept second best. So in terms of how you proceed with the quarterback position, you know, there's other options. You could look at a Hinton Hooker. You could look at you know maybe exploring a Trey Lance type of trade. You could do a lot of things, or you could stand pat. But you don't just draft quarterback just to draft quarterback. It has to be selective. Don't settle just, oh, well, that's the guy we wanted. You're trying to get the quarterback that you like for your system. And Bryce Young was that guy. And Bryce Young, because of the win over the Colts, is unavailable to them. Raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. For, for you in that sense, then, you don't, you'd be surprised they took C.J. Stroud at two. I would very surprised if they make them so in okay this this is fun this is really fun for everybody that's done had nothing to do for the last couple of weeks but think about what might happen next thursday evening when it comes down so much of the value then of the second pick has to do with whoever you're dealing with and what they're willing to sort of give up it, with the change with D'Amico Ryans now with the defensive identity that this team wants to be how much value does the second pick have to the organization when it comes to the defensive players that are there if they're not going to go quarterback? And again, I understand that that's a complicated question because if someone overwhelms you with an offer for the second pick, you're going to sort of take that. But you know, there are a couple of, dif- of difference makers that in any other year where there isn't this crazy sort of four-headed quarterback monster in the room, you know, would be viable second overall picks in terms of defensive players. 
Right. I think if you're the Texan that's taking over a few stand pat, then you could turn the card in with Will Anderson, who's a really clean prospect. They made it a priority after talking with him at the scouting combine to bring him in as one of their first visits, the 30 visits that they have. And they wanted to meet with Will, who's visiting Seahawks today and also visiting the Lions. He only had three visits. And Seattle wanted to get him in there. And you know, it's interesting for Seattle to do that, you know, just thinking about, well, what if they were trading? Uh, what if they don't trade? What if the Texans trade out at two and Will Anderson slides a little bit? So I think Seattle, that was smart of them to meet with him. And, you know, Tyree Wilson's another player that's of consideration for the Texans at two. So there's a lot of scenarios where they don't draft a quarterback. And that's because of Bryce Young going to the Panthers. You know, when that became really solidified, that Frank Reich and everyone was on board with going with Bryce Young instead of C.J. Stroud, it really changed the draft. And now there's the fallout from that decision, from that status that he's about to have as a top overall pick. And everybody else has to give him line. Aaron Wilson with us, taking some time with us here on The Fan. When you look at general manager Nick Casario, the last two drafts, no fear on his face in terms of making trades Stepping away from what they could do at pick two, even if they stand pat at two, 12 picks in their arsenal right now, including that number two overall pick. How much movement do you expect in terms of their overall trade market outside of two? And how many of those 12 picks they currently have do you think they actually use this year? I think they'll probably want to put less than the picks that he has now. I think that what he'll wind up doing is using some of those picks to move up and maneuver within the draft as you know, they're on the clock or before to get players and specifically targeted players that he'll get because he's got the draft pick ammunition to go and get those players. And I think that's where he's in a really advantageous spot. And this draft will work well for him. It is not a great draft, but there is a volume of players that are, I think it lacks great players, but it has a lot of good players. And that will work for their roster, which needs a lot of work still. Not to mention the fact that you've got future firsts from Cleveland coming in the next couple of years, which I think gives this organization a little bit of an opportunity to sort of sit back and do the right thing as opposed to what is the immediate thing. But that comes back to the quarterback question. So Bryce Young, the clear number one, he's going to be off the board. Quarterback may not be in play this year. I, again, I don't like dealing with hypotheticals, but that's kind of what we have to do with this silly sort of season of the year. What is the ideal long-term prospect for the Texans at quarterback? Back with Young off the board. I mean, I like, I don't know how ideal it is. I like Hendon Hooker. I think he would have been a first round pick if not for the ACL. You have something of a redshirt year. I don't think it's a bad fallback scenario for the Texans. So you have Will Levis. Levis is someone that doesn't have great tape, has some footwork issues. I think personality is fine. He's got a lot of tools. The upside's there, but he's something of a project. Anthony Richardson, someone that you, know, you got to work on his accuracy. He did have a lot of incompletions that were caused by drop passes. Elite athlete, you know, it's just my opinion. I think he'd be great at number two overall. And but they have not. You know, normally you draft a player, you visit, have him in for a visit, you have a workout with him. They've done neither. They did Zoom with Richardson. I've heard of no interest in Richardson, and so I, I've checked on that multiple times to see if like something's going to happen late. It just hasn't materialized. 
you know, did a trip with Stroud, did a trip with Young, a trip with Levis, a really early visit with Hooker, like Will mm. Anderson. Yeah. And I'm told he'll be ready by August to throw, and I don't know how much practice it can do. I'm sure he's not ready for contact you know, that soon after the ACL, but injured in November. I'll look as good. A little older than you would like, but really good athlete, really good person from everything I've been told, and an accurate thrower that was very productive for the balls. I like him a lot. I, I think that's a decent scenario for them. And you have Davis Mills and Case Keenum hold down the fort until you feel like Hooker's ready to play football, and maybe that's your quarterback. And, you know, like Russell Wilson was a third-round pick. Tom Brady was a six-round pick. Not everybody has to be a high draft pick to be a successful quarterback. They did, though, fine with Davis Mills in the third round. Basically, you drafted a career backup. That, you know, that's the honest assessment for, for Davis. But, yeah, I think that that's a decent scenario for them. Yeah, I mean, so many different things at play, and obviously you've got at least long-term sort of projected for with the draft capital a couple of, if not one, if two quarterbacks that may even rank higher or rate higher than many in this draft class coming up in the 2024 draft, Aaron. And so much of the reaction here in Indianapolis has to do with the fact that you take the temperature of the fan base, which obviously even sort of mirrors now the temperature inside the Colts organization with, there's just been too many years of failed experiments at quarterback. And so it's the least, it's, it's the least protected secret in the NFL that the Colts are going to draft a quarterback. If they don't draft a quarterback, the franchise might implode on itself and there'll be a, you know, a black hole type situation because we I think just the Colts are fine. I mean right. the Colts I, I don't know why there's so much anxiety because they're going to be plenty of quarterbacks left for totally. their picking. They should you know Chris Bauer knows what he's doing at Dodds and all those guys. They will do a great job if they just let the board come to them. Just let it unfold. And, they don't have to move and, and that's all. kind of what we're seeing this week, right? There's In the way that people are talking. Like, there's a maximum of three quarterbacks that could be off the board before their pick. Okay. If all three, let's say, if it did go that way, and I don't think it will, let's say even if the picks are traded, so let's say Stroud's gone, Richardson's gone, and Bryce is gone, well, Levis is still there. Yeah. But it, that's, they're probably going to be luckier than that, where there's one of those other higher-rated quarterbacks, uh, in my opinion, like Richardson or and or Stroud, is still around right. at four. Right. And, so, and yeah, if I'm if I'm Chris Ballard, I basically like keep my I mean, I'll listen to this, like, you know, wants to call me and say, hey, you know, we're trying to bail out, you know, maybe like Arizona, but I just wouldn't do it. I think he's got some good draft picks. You know, they went through a miserable year to get to pick this high. So you can have a good quarterback for the future to go with Jonathan Taylor in a strong backfield. Do that. But yeah, I'm sure he's drafting a quarterback. I'd be shocked if Chris Ballard doesn't draft a quarterback and he'll have the opportunity to do that and there's nothing wrong with betting on the upside with Levis or Richardson or Stroud for that matter. I think they're all pretty good prospects. They're just not great. There is this is not a great quarterback draft. There's no Joe Burrow, there's no Justin right. Herbert, there's nothing like that. There's no Trevor Lawrence even. And remember it took Trevor a couple of years to be good. I you know. I think they're fine. It's just a matter of, you know, might this be frustrating for say a Jim Ursay? Because these quarterbacks are, you know, not surefire. Sure, there's nothing certain though. No, and it, I think he understands that. I mean, it's just a, it's a difficult draft because the, the demand doesn't meet 
the supply. Right, and, and I think but the culture in a position where even when it's not great, they're going to have to probably swing and try and get it right with this particular quarterback. And my question kind of has to do with, from a Houston standpoint in this building the roster back up, how different the feel of need is to get quarterback right is in Houston right now, given the way that it is here at Indianapolis and how that makes their approach to the draft so differently between the two franchises. As far as in the building or the fans? Well, I mean, it should be the building, right? The building drives what it's going on. But I do think that a little bit of apathy here in Indianapolis certainly influences the urgency, especially when you have an owner here in Indianapolis that's tied into understanding and taking the temperature of the fan base. But I'm curious how different it is in Houston. There's a lot of apathy here that they're trying to work on that's improving since Danico Ryans was hired. They'd like to keep that momentum going by winning enough to keep the fans engaged. And they'd like to create excitement with their draft. They're hoping that this will be something of a, let's build the momentum. We've got the coach. Let's get some exciting players. And let's keep selling tickets and getting people to say positive things about the team because there really are genuinely positive things going on. And that's where they're at as a building. Ideally, yes, you have a quarterback that – you can get behind. But if it's not there, you can't let fans and marketing concerns drive your football decisions. I think they've never been a team that interfered or said, hey, you have to draft this player because we're we asking some tickets. Now, they have a lot of empty seats or yeah. seats being filled by the opposition. The Eagles fans took over for that Thursday night game. That happened for the Chiefs game. And it's very notable. Like you can hear, uh, you probably covered it, Chiefs game where they say home of the Chiefs instead of home of the Brave, you could hear it so loud at NRG and here in Houston, Texas. And the Eagles fans, they took over. They were loud. They were all unruly sometimes. They were all over the place. And it was like an Eagles home game. And you can buy tickets for $20. That's got to stop. They got to fix that. And it's been going that way for a couple of years now. So, yes, you need to get people interested. You got to be relevant. Relevant would be getting a quarterback, a good quarterback. But if it's the wrong quarterback or he doesn't fit or your football people don't want him, well, then you're making a mistake. And you're better off just building your defense right away and then seeing what you can do to try to you know, get your quarterback later. But I just think you cannot force certain positions you can try to do some things with. Maybe a guy can play a different position. Somebody like, you know, your movement defensive end to a linebacker or vice versa. In this case, it's the top spot. You just can't get it wrong. And if you don't feel good about it, then you shouldn't force the issue. Aaron, when you look at from afar, from our perspective, right, I'm not covering the Texans on a daily basis, just the the way that I, I see the national media cover them and just my bias around Houston is caught up still in the Bill O'Brien era with how there were some boneheaded decisions made, whether it was just trading DeAndre Hopkins, just the, the fallout from that. And, and obviously you couldn't help the off the field stuff as much, but there was the contract dispute before that with Deshaun Watson. So I take that into account and I look at the Texans. And I'm like, okay, Still the same ownership group in the McNairs. Can I really trust them to make the right decisions? But then when I look at a general manager like Nick Casario, who I think is a fresh start for them, like he's cooking something nice to this point. He's trying to lay foundations now in year three. Is that a a, a bad perception to have about the franchise that, well, they're ultimately going to make the wrong decisions? And is that still felt that way amongst the fan base? Or is that just a, a national bias not being there on a day-to-day basis? I think a little bit of both. I also would say that... You know, 
both those aren't in the building. It's a lot more functional and better than people realize. It's just a matter of, and the locker room is very good. You know, the players, the way they get along, the camaraderie, that's actually even last year when they were losing was very good. And even people thought, oh, Brandon Cooks is upset. He wants to be traded. The players still like Brandon. And Brandon got along well with everybody and worked well. That wasn't a problem. Players stick together. And, you know, his issue with the team is separate. He was ultimately traded to the Cowboys. What I think about the team is that they're improving, they're going in the right direction. And the Bill O'Brien era, you know, the, some of those mistakes in the past, they're not making those same mistakes. They are getting value for trades. Like, yeah, it took some patience and some great lawyering by Rusty Harden, you know, where Deshaun wasn't indicted on by two grand juries. He That allowed them to make the trade. They allowed David Mulligetta to set up something of a bidding war with pre-qualifying teams that could be involved in the, you know, the trade scenario. And you know, I thought Nick Casario did a good job of not being ultra controlling about it, just kind of letting it play out. And he got great value for the trade. And that's why they're in this better position. It's taken him a while, but he's gotten the salary cap in shape. And yeah, I thought their free agency was a little, you know, just it's solid. It's not, anything that people should be very excited about, but it was solid this year when they had some money to spend and it was more of a volume approach. I think it's getting better here. It's just a matter of, you know, how long, much longer does it take? Is 2024 really the year that they can contend in the division? I don't think it's very good. Maybe if they have a quarterback, I think that the defense is going to get in shape under D'Amico, but you know, we're going to find out. It ultimately, you know, the time will tell the truth about this organization, but the vibe I have and what I hear from people inside and outside of the building is, yeah, things are better. Aaron, uh, we'll leave you with this one. If you had to judge the word of the vibe, you talk so much about value, about getting the most out of this draft next week. What ultimately right now would you say is the most likely outcome to the first round and the Houston Texans? Probably getting a edge rusher, Will Anderson, Tyree Wilson, perhaps at 12, getting Jackson Smith McGibba and you know, getting a wide receiver one, and then maybe at 33, whether it's at 33 or maybe they're moving, maybe you'd have to move up for him a little bit if you want to hit in hooker. That's one scenario that I think is viable for the Texans. Yeah, that would be a heck of a haul for the Texans. Appreciate your insight, Aaron. Learned a lot. Thanks so much. Thank you. Darren Wilson from down in Houston. Raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time.